When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, John Lukomnik. Uh, he is the co-author, along with James P. Hawley, of a just-released Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters, out from Rutledge. John is the uh, managing partner and CIO of Sinclair Capital, and uh, James Hawley is a senior ESG advisor at FactSet. Uh, John, thank you so much for agreeing it's to be on pleasure. the show. my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dan. So uh, longtime listeners of the show will know that we get, particularly with a title of a book like that, we have a lot in common. Uh, we both operate in an industry that has a intellectual paradigm that is showing its age. And we, we both tried to point that out. You've done a really, really good job in your version. It's actually much more succinct than mine of describing the framework, uh, modern portfolio theory and, and why it's time to move on. Do you want to kind of summarize what you consider the key elements, both of the framework, though most of our listeners will know about basics of diversification and, and uh, mean variance uh, reduction and so forth, but the outline of, of the, the framework created 70 years ago and why it's showing sure. its age. So MPT really was a revolution. Um, and while the book has been called a takedown of MPT, we also think we're um, respectful towards it because it does do one thing very well. It suggests how to extract the um, best risk return from the extent marketplace. The problem is MPT is a portfolio theory and everyone regards it as an investing theory. And those are two very different things. Um, MPT, everyone thinks of as diversification. In fact, diversification, we track back to Miguel Cervantes writing, don't put all your eggs in one basket in Don Quixote in 1609. So it's an old idea, but what Harry Markowitz, the inventor of Nobel Prize winner for modern portfolio theory, did was create the math that enables everyone to do it. Here's the problem. To make the math work, it has to be sort of hermetically sealed away from the real world. To do that, there are three enabling um, theories that we consider part of the MPT tradition, efficient market hypothesis, which basically says anything that can be known is known in the market and acted upon. Um, Random walk theory, which says the next movement of a market or a stock or a security is random, like flipping a coin. And um, rationality, which is that people are rational. All three are evidently false. Let's take the rationality, which you would think is true. Investors are rational. In fact, rationality means something very specific. It means that you are going to value risk bilaterally in the marketplace. And in fact, years after Markowitz won his Nobel Prize, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize, 
for behavioral finance for prospect theory that proved, in fact, that investors were not rational. We're loss adverse. We feel losses more than we value prospective gains. Um, well, if that's true, you have to know where the loss was. So not only does rationality go out the window, so does random walk theory. And in terms of efficient market hypothesis, it's, you know, it's nice, it's intuitive, it's logical, it's self-contained, it's also wrong. It's sort of the perfect myth. And all you have to do is look at any bubble or anything else to to know that all the information is not there. If all the information were there, you wouldn't have arbitrage desks, you wouldn't need insider trading laws. Um, and so it, it it's it's a nice thing that people refer to as if it were proven and it never has been. Um, so let's just summarize for for a, a lot of the investors. Again, they may not, when they walk into their financial advisor's office, they may not be said, hey, you're signing up for modern portfolio theory. That rarely happens that way. But a great deal of the material that is presented to them in terms of style box, recommendations for diversification, measurements of securities and portfolios, all was the started the, the the intellectual framework for that started in 1952 with Harry Markowitz picked up a lot of speed in 64 and 65 with another key element and it was based on these underlying mathematical theories of how the world works which themselves were really dominant uh, from my perspective this is me more than you uh, in the social science dominated world of, of post World War uh, United States where social behavior becomes a science in formulas and. You know, uh, MPT is a perfect example of that. There are actually others in other mm-hmm. forms, other endeavors and, and uh, urban planning and, and education and so forth. But you have a nice mathematical formula that explains the world using rational actors and using perfect markets. And the the allure of this approach is... The allure is, is math. Because right? it, I mean, the old, the old saying yeah, that social scientists want to be scientists and scientists want to be mathematicians. And here you can jump the intermediate stage and the only thing you have to do is say, we're not going to bother with the complexities and messiness of the real world. And yet, the truth is the real world is where, where value is created and where risk is created or destroyed or mitigated. Um, but we don't have to deal with that because we just have to deal with price and volatility and correlation. And those are mathematical formulas that are judged basically relative to each other. And then relative to each other, and this is where I think your book makes a really good, clear contribution. I think others have made similar points, but you've made it very clearly. There's a lot of navel-gazing as a result of this. The effort to be successful in investing is just within the market, defining risk, uh, incremental risk, uh, non-diversifiable risk within the stock market. And what you do is try to get investors and just participants to look and say, hey, let's step back and look at the risk levels of the market, what is going to affect the capital markets, as opposed to MPT, which is really limited to what's going on inside the capital markets. You have some lovely phrases. Uh, you know, I, I'm just going to quote one, a screened off entity within a detached economic paradigm. Please tell me what you really think. That's on page 63. Um, 76, limiting investment theory to hermetically sealed math. So uh, these are, you're stepping outside of basis points of relative benchmark performance 
and saying, whoa, 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 let's, let's look at the bigger picture. And maybe you can shift now to, to what you see as the bigger picture and the opportunity and the risk of the risk of the capital markets, not with Sure. Here's the markets. problem, what we call the MPT paradox. MPT is diversification is great on idiosyncratic risk on company A doing better than company B, stock A doing better, stock B, bonds, whatever your securities are. Here's the problem with that. We know that non-diversifiable systematic risk in the capital markets, the level of the capital markets themselves, basically, um, affects, depending on what study you look at and what time period, 75 to 94% of your return. And so in some ways, MPT focuses you on that which matters least, on that 6 to 25% of return that you can diversify. And it's a good job. It does a good job on that. But it's like Maslow's hammer, speaking about social science theories. Um, that's all we had. So we thought everything was dealable through diversification. So let me give you two examples of why it actually is horrible for people. Um, it works great when used properly, but when you apply a nail, when you apply a hammer to something that's not a nail, the results aren't so pretty. 2008, 2009 financial crisis, Everyone thinks we're diversified because we've got thousands of bonds in these mortgage securities. The fact of the matter is it was a systemic real-world problem of bad underwriting, and investors enabled it further by diversifying instead of saying, let's try to deal with the real-world problem of what is the underwriting standard. And so we just kept- That is right. adding more bad securities to a portfolio doesn't minimize risk. It right. just it's, adds it's, more it's, bad securities to a portfolio. And eventually you notice it's like, you know, pardon the bar jar epithet, but it's, you know, if you, when a farmer's trying to get rid of the manure and he spreads it thin on the field, you don't notice it, but then he's going to lay more and more and more. And eventually you're just covered with a field of manure. And that was the 2008, 2009. You can't spread it thin enough that it matters if the manure keeps coming. Um, the other problem, when I say the MPT paradox, if the vast majority of your return is non-diversifiable, and if your only tool basically says you have to accept market risk because everything is relative to the market, right, um, then you're discouraged from actually going outside the market. And we've started to think that the only thing that is investing is trading, security analysis, portfolio construction, risk management from an MPT portfolio point of view, but from, from inside, inside the, the marketplace. But if you actually, if you owned a candy store, you would care about what your customers think about your candy store, what the brand of your candy store is, how much you're going to pay in fines, how you're going to discard your waste, who you hire, what the turnover is. Basically, you understand that taking care of the real world risks of how things work is how you mitigate your risk. Another way of thinking about that, say you care, your MPT teaches you to worry a lot about what's going on inside the candy, candy store. But what you're arguing is you also have to be very, very aware of what's going Absolutely on inside the candy store, the neighborhood, the regulatory environment that is not occurring actually within 
the candy store and you're, you're staying set back. I, I hate to use over use an over phrase, overused phrase. You're thinking outside the box. You're thinking outside the theory, thinking outside the candy store and saying, what are the broader impacts on the entire capital markets? Because that's what's going to generate the vast majority of an investor's return, not right. nitpicking. And MPT has become a theory of nitpicking in, in practice. Maybe not in 1952, was created because it was novel then, but it's become a theory. Well, I think it's a now. theory that is applicable, as I said, to a, a minority of the risk and return that you take. Um, and it does a good job of that. So my question is, when someone says, I want a risk-adjusted return, they're not talking about what you and I and your listeners know is an alpha risk-adjusted return. Right? What, what can I do due to stock picking and skill? They're talking about the whole thing. And I'll give you an example. I used to run New York City's pension funds. I had an epiphany one day that all the stuff I was doing, all the manager selection, security selection, negotiating is, does, dealing with lawyers, dealing all this stuff was somewhat irrelevant. I needed some place at that time to put $80 billion, turn a real rate of return above my liabilities. You think about it as above inflation forever. And that started me thinking about I needed a healthy economy and a healthy capital market to translate the investing opportunities in the economy. Another way to think about it is people invest for a reason. They invest for retirement, they invest to buy a home, they invest to put a kid through college, they invest for daily needs. Well, I had $80 billion of needs and outperforming a down market, right? Market's down 10, I'm only down eight, I'm a genius. I've done better than everyone else. I've got 200 basis points out performance. But I still only got 92 cents on the dollar to defease those liabilities. It's counterintuitive to the way we've all been taught. But I'd much rather underperform an up market. I'd rather be up eight in an up 10% market. And then I have a dollar eight. And so I started thinking, well, what affects the health of the market overall? And if you accept that markets price risk and opportunity, but it is created in the real world, the MPT provides no way to mitigate systematic risk in the marketplace, which is often called by systemic risk in the real world. Let me just define those two terms because they're confusing. They're confusing. And in the book, you're using both and you're trying to keep it narrow. And even as a practitioner, I have to say, okay. I was so, zigging and back and forth between right. systemic and systemic systematic. So definitely worth reviewing. means a risk to a system. So climate change is a risk to the environmental system. Systematic means non-diversifiable risk in the capital markets. So climate change affects a broad swath of the marketplace. You can't diversify your way out of it. You've got to deal with it by trying to affect emissions in the real world. Income inequality creates social unrest, creates problems in the market. Lack of gender diversity on boards is a systemic risk. And you'll note that these are things that a lot of mainstream investors now are taking on themselves to do something about. Now, let, let's stop there a little bit because... Compared to the current, 
there, there, we, we're we not really going to use a particular word. We've decided not to use a particular acronym because it's more confusing. It's very loaded. But this type of, of uh, macro approach that you're uh, arguing for, you really have a, a particular emphasis in that. And it, it's really uh, corporate activism and corporate governance, getting much, much better corporate governance. And there's a history apparently you've been involved in. And you also provide a history of a couple decades worth of, of corporate governance um, efforts to improvement. But do you want to go over a little bit of the history of efforts to look outside of just, you know, uh, MPT-oriented basis points to these bigger issues that you're you're pushing towards through this the avenue of sure. We governance. actually go through a couple of centuries because we start with the Dusty Dutch East Indies Corporation, which is about three hundred fifty years ago, um, and just to make people think understand that these issues don't change. You talk about capital structure issues. Well, there were issues there. How long do you hold up to people's money? The shareholders demanded to be paid a dividend. Um, I know you're a big dividend investment guy. Um, they, you know, the, the, the uh, officers decided that they would pay them a dividend, but they pay them in nutmeg and pepper. Um, so these, these, these issues go back years, but we call that stage zero of corporate governance. And basically for 350 years, not much happened. Yes, there were things that happened, but the locus of power being the executives of the company didn't change. 1980s, you had what I jokingly call the dystopian universe. You had dead hand pills and goodbye kisses and raiders and white knights and just the rock bottom of terrible corporate governance from a shareholder or a society. And there was a response to that, right? The Council of Institutional Investors was formed. Green mail, which was basically blackmail. You go to a CEO, you say, I own a bunch of your stock. I'm going to do a hostile takeover. But you can pay me off at a premium. It'll go away. Um, it was basically green mail. The capital market has largely been outlawed. Um, and that was the 80s. Fast forward to the 90s. Uh, excuse me, 2005, you had the development of UNPRI, which added sort of environmental and social to governance. But we were still looking at a corporation by corporation basis. What's changed since the financial crisis is people are now looking at these systemic issues and applying activism, not of the type that Carl Icahn or Bill Ackman does, but activism around climate change, activism around things that affect entire industries, like how safe is mining. And that is designed to make the capital markets re-rate by decreasing systemic risk. And you refer to these as beta projects. And beta is a term that's sufficiently well-known. It's probably worth making sure the the, the reader, as they understand your, the six big beta projects that you're going to mention, that uh, they, they understand what you mean, a beta of the entire market to society, not so much an individual stock to the market, but the, the, the health of the capital markets overall right. to society. So the fundamental theory is that the capital markets rely on healthy real world systems, environmental, social, and financial systems, and then they can translate the value created in those systems to investors. Um, alpha activism is the type of thing that you read about in the papers where a activist investor goes after a company and says, hey, you're not performing well or you're holding too much cash or whatever the argument is and tries to improve the financial performance of that one company. Um, we can have an argument about whether it's short-term, long-term, but basically that's what they're trying to do. 
what we say beta activism is, is a bit more for the whole market. Let's try to decrease the risk of climate change. Let's try to increase the number of women in boardrooms, those sorts of issues. Or, and I think this sometimes gets forgotten um, at an industry sector level, because many of the same issues obviously affect companies in the same industry. And if you have, if you try to set guardrails as beta activists do, set standards that prevent a race to the bottom, they can all compete while decreasing risk. So for instance, a really great example, some of your listeners may remember there was a tragic mining dam collapse in Brazil a few years ago, 260 people died. Um, The market cap of that company decreased by $19 billion virtually overnight. Um, And it turns out these mining collapses are not uncommon. There's like one every two months and we'd have, we just didn't pay that much attention because it was eight people dead, right? Not 260. Uh, And honestly, these often happen in developing markets, near indigenous people, on private land, sort of off the um, social mental news grid of London, New York, other financial centers. Um, But it finally got everyone's attention. And together with industry, to their credit, um, the Swedish pension funds, the Church of England commissioners, which runs the Church of England treasury, um, and a number of others got together and working with the industry and with the UN um, and with PRI, managed to set minimum standards for these dams so they wouldn't keep collapsing because the cheapest way to make them was earthenware, which collapses. But if you have everyone do it, then no one gets a short-term boost versus their competitors by improving the quality of dams. Just mapping where they are, they're over 3,000 around the world. As I said, they're often remote, so no one knew where they were, no one knew what the risks were. Um, And in fact, the industry has accepted all this. That's what I mean by being activism. Affect a broad swath of the marketplace by dealing with a real world issue in an attempt to mitigate risks that otherwise would manifest in the capital markets. And it's a risk to the capital markets. That is the the valuations, Mm -hmm. uh, the discount rates. We go up or down if we reduce this overall. Rather than than deciding which particular security is better or worse, let's lift the the, the, uh, rising tide lifts all the boats. One other term uh, of art that you use similar to beta activism, but it's worth identifying because it's kind of cool, and it's but it's also worth uh, identifying separately. Universal ownership. I may have misunderstood it, but the notion is, listen, we're all in this together, one planet. And also through the success of diversification, we all own, basically, we all own everything. And there, there's, how, how mm-hmm. do you link universal ownership to this greater responsibility for uh, things beyond yeah, the One of the markets? reasons I think this book has gotten such a reception is it's a finance book. Right. There are lots of books that say, you know, for the benefit of people and planet, you should do all these things. We're saying for improving your risk return ratio, you should be doing all these things. And here's why. So universal owner, one of the reasons we don't think we're smarter than Harry Markowitz in 1952, the marketplace was 8% institutionalized. Right. Everyone else was, you know, it's the typical idea that we have in our head of who's an investor, some mom and pop person sitting with a an annual report and spreadsheets and looking at the stock tables and figuring it out. That's not the way people invest anymore. You invest, you buy an index, you buy a themed ETF, 
you're not picking two stocks. And what that means is the overall health of the marketplace matters more to you than the performance of an individual stock. What you And this is an extension of universal ownership. What universal ownership says is costs which are externalized by one company in your portfolio become input um, costs to another company in your portfolio. So if one of your companies is um, has a high carbon footprint and your other company is an insurer who's paying for, you know, weather patterns or an agriculture company that can't do things or Intel where water is being stressed, they need water to run a fab plant or you get the idea that the output from one company, the externalization of costs is being re-internalized to the rest of your portfolio. This book takes that a step further and says, in fact, because of the structure of the marketplace, because everyone's buying indices, everyone's buying diversified pools of securities, the overall health matters, not just the individual cost that's being externalized. Okay. So we've stepped out of the box, taking a bigger view and saying, listen, since the driver of value of the returns in the market is, is the condition of the market itself, not really individual security selection when everything is institutionally owned and a lot strong bias towards indexing. What are, what are the issues? You mentioned them, but let's go one by one. You really start with and have the longest history on corporate governance. It's clearly where you come from and you have scars on your back associated with uh, boardroom battles. But then you you uh, move on beyond just call it plain vanilla corporate governance uh, from the 80s and 90s to what you consider the the beta projects of today. You mentioned them earlier, but let's kind of go by, go through them systematically. Well, one by one. I don't know that I can go through them systematically one by one because when Jim and I started writing this book, we started writing it five years ago and then everyone loved it and made us write papers and we got distracted. So it took us a while. At that time, we had said, let's go list every beta activist campaign there is. There were about 40 of them. There are hundreds now. And so we just picked a couple as examples. Let me take a governance one. Um, the New York City pension funds took on how people could be nominated to boards of directors. You mentioned to whom do boards owe loyalty. Um, interesting result. This was a, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Anyone who's interested can just look up proxy access on, and find out the whole history. But it was a rule that it wasn't a rule, but the courts left a loophole. It, it became what economists call the natural experiment. And what was discovered by three smart economists, including one SEC one, was that the New York City funds doing this created 53 basis points of excess value. Now, let me explain how big 53 basis points of excess value at the time. I think it was around 2014. I may be off by a year. Um, if you extend that across the marketplace, it's $128 billion of value. Now, that's more than any star portfolio manager creates, right, by, by picking and choosing stocks. So when you say it's a MPT is a detail, I wouldn't quite call it a detail, but clearly this sort of beta activism has the potential to do a lot more than stock picking or portfolio construction. Um, climate change is the classic one. I am sure everyone here um, knows about it. But the industry is actually... 
I mean, I am criticized sometimes for being too friendly for the industry on this. I think the industry has done well. I know there are lots of allegations of greenwashing, but the fact of the matter is um, at this point, there are hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars in low-income carbon index funds. There are clean tech funds. Um, There's a um, carbon zero um, asset manager group. You can go out and your listeners can find and do the research to determine whether it's really green or green washed um, funds. But there are some really good funds out there. Let me push back a little bit if I can, just just for the sake of argument. So I happen to represent an investment style, which by its very nature, as listeners will know, I oversee a a large dividend complex for US asset manager. And by its very nature, dividend investing is long-term. There are ways to really mess up dividend investing by make it very short-term, but it's actually not that common. Instead, most people who focus on dividend investing really are looking at whether they succeed in holding the securities or the portfolio for 30 or 40 50 years, doesn't matter. But the intent often is, and the analysis often is, because the net present value of the dividends received, you have to have the, the long-term math. So in theory, we're all, we have an agreement that we're all long-term investors. And to uh, and again, we represent, dividend investing represents a distinct minority in the US stock market currently. So I'm not under any illusions about that. But for those of us in that small besieged camp, we actually think, or believe that we think in very, very uh, long time periods, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so for us, part of the uh, analytical equation is sustainability with Mm -hmm. a small s, not the way sustainability has been used the last five years. But listen, is this company going to be around in 50 years? Does it make goods and services that allow it to be in around? And even if it's not going to be around, and there are companies that are naturally declining, uh, is there a cash flow argument to ride them. But there's a built-in element of very, very long-term thinking. And I, I have to ask respectfully whether some of the newfangled approaches aren't just sustainable investing that has been around at least in a small corner of the market for a long period of time. Uh, you know, We're under no illusion as, say, dividend investors about the direction of carbon, uh, about the direction of safe smoking, uh, tobacco, about how telecommunications is consolidating, about how many industries consolidate over time, and is there a cash flow argument or is there not, and so forth. But we we are regularly thinking about what is the future. Uh, we may not have had the formal templates and labels that have become very popular the last five years, but dividends a subset of, of, of maybe value investing. But there are, I think, also value investors out there who would say they've been thinking in these terms of externalities that drive market value for, 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 for decades because that's kind of in the nature of being a long-term investor. Does that count much f- with you or you think it's just too hard to be a really long-term investor within the framework of uh, oh, no, I definitely, I definitely think it's true. I think the longer term you are, um, the more you understand that real-world factors affect the sustainability of the dividend, the sustainability of the company, that you shy away from short-term financial manipulation. Um, all those things are good. I think that what has happened in the last few years is you have much more data and information. Um, The the acronym you were shying away from before was ESG, which I'm not going to get into the various sub-themes of ESG, but the one thing that all of them do 
is has increased the amount of data, sometimes the amount of information, rarely, but sometimes the amount of analysis. And we'll distinguish between those three things. Um, and so it will enable you to be a better dividend investor. I think what you're talking about, there's another book out right now, Alex Edmonds, professor of London Business School called Grow the Pie. And Alex's um, philosophy, which I agree with, is that you create financial value as a subset of creating social value. We have um, two discussions in the book that I think are relevant to dividend and long-term investing. Um, one is how things become material. And if you're aware of it, you can sidestep threats to sustainability in your sense of financial sustainability, sustainability of dividends. The other thing is there is an entire chapter that I find fascinating um, that is a little bit off to the side of the book. It doesn't get much attention, but I find it fascinating about why people tend to be short-term and the biological basis for short-termism um, and how our brains evolve and what parts of our brains make um, temporal trade-off decisions. So I think it is difficult to be long-term, but not impossible. And in fact, being a dividend investor forces you to overcome some of those neurological biases because it does exactly, it creates the context by which you don't have to give in to heuristics that were formed prior to modern society. Um, and so in some ways, being a dividend investor or any other um, philosophic, but, but systematic philosophic implementation of long-term investing is very helpful. Well, I appreciate, I, I'm supposed to be pitching your book, but I appreciate you pitching my business a little bit. I want to mention how you end and then talk a little bit about the aftermath of the book. Uh, you do end on a note that I, I like a great deal. Uh, I do try to put in uh, literary references where I can in my own work, but you definitely taught me here. It's one I've seen before, but not in this context. Oscar Wilde on MPT. Who knew that Oscar Wilde had commented on MPT? But of course, it's a man who knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. So again, that I think really nicely captures the inward insular focus of MPT as opposed to the value outside of the whole structure. I, I can see on social media, I tried to get you as quickly as I could, but I can see on social media, your book is having a big impact. What has been some of the responses from institutional investors, from regulators, from, from investors uh, that, uh, to your, this, this effort to move, move beyond MPT? It's been wonderful. I mean, I, you know, we wrote the book, as, as you know, you don't write academic books to get rich, right? We wrote the book to try to influence and redefine what investing is, that these sort of beta activist campaigns and standard setting um, are every bit as much investing and affect the market and affect wealth creation as much as, you know, Kathy Woods picking stocks. Indeed. Um, it, more so, in my opinion, um, which isn't to say there isn't room in the world for Kathy Woods. It's just different. Um, and the reaction has been very positive. So for instance, um, I have spoken personally in private and small group discussions um, to the largest investors in the world, um, both in the public sector I, um, and in the private sector. Um, I've done over 25 podcasts or webcasts Barron's asked for an op-ed. Um, we, 
you know, I, I have a meeting with the state treasurer next week. Um, I have, I'm being interviewed by the head of Principles for Responsible Investment later this week for a podcast that will air in September. Um, and so within a certain section, and, and, and what I actually like best, I got a reaction from a, a business school professor in Belgium who said, because uh, we are trying to influence the academy because I think they're, they've been part of creating the problem. Let's have them be part of solving the problem. And she said, we've got a lot of students who come in and we teach them MPT. And they go, but what about, what about, what about? And I try and say, well, we teach this, but... And now I just can hand them your book. Right? <laughs> so that was the nicest response um, I've had. So I'm thrilled. We are, you know, it's not a modest book. We're trying to change what investing is. That's where we're taking on a Nobel Prize winning theory that has been the dominant paradigm of investing for the last 70 years. You know, those aren't small ambitions, um, but I guess they've had some resonance. Well, uh, I applaud the effort. The book is Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters by John Lukomnik and James P. Hawley, just out from Rutledge. And I, I have to add that the vir- one of the virtues of the book, including it being added to uh, business school curriculum, is that it is very readable. It is uh, relatively brief, concise. So uh, it is not a 500-page uh, heavy tome. This is digestible by not just participants in the capital markets, but also investors who take an interest in their in their exercise. So uh, I, I encourage you. Uh, John, thank you so much for, for being a guest on the show. It's been really an interesting conversation. 